Hey everyone, you can listen to all seasons of As She Rises, including the new season three, ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hyperboreal. Arnica nods heavy-headed on the bruised slope. Peaks recede in all directions, in heat haze, evening in my recollection. The shield at my throat, ornamental and worse. We descended the gully, thrummed into confusion, with the last snowmelt, a tricklet, into mud, ulterior. One wolfbane bloom, iodine-hued, rising on its stalk into the luster of air. June really isn't June anymore, is it? A glacier's heart of milk, loose from a thousand summer days in extravagant succession, from the back of my tongue, dexterous and sinister. Some of my earliest associations with climate change are of melting Arctic ice and polar bears that became a symbol for an endangered place far away. And for many of us, these associations stop there. Not only is that an incomplete picture of how climate change is playing out all over the world, but it's an incomplete picture of how it's playing out in the Arctic. It leaves out the complicated relationship between the landscape and its people. Indigenous people's lives have been tied and woven to the land we know as Alaska for thousands of years. And now, so is their endangerment. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. Beyond the continent's northern tree line, at the ends of the earth, lies a frozen kingdom. It's a magnificent and breathtaking place. In the winter, it's dark and bone-achingly cold. The ground is permanently frozen. When summer comes, the temperatures rise a little, and the moss-covered landscape sees sunlight once again. The light of day sometimes lasts for 24 hours, and a brilliant, ice-carved flatland reveals itself from underneath the snow cover. Thanks to this now soggy soil, there are marshes and bogs and rivers everywhere. The few animals that can live up here, like caribou, come out to eat and drink. This is the Arctic tundra, and it is being dramatically affected by climate change. At the top of the show, you heard from Joan navayuk Kane. Joan is an Alaska native and member of the Inupak people. She is a poet and has published several books. Her collection of poems, titled Hyperboreal, focuses on the cultural and biological threats to her ancestral community, including climate change and language extinction. Here's Joan. I think I remember the sensation of 
my childhood that I had spent a, a lot of time on the tundra in this weird peninsula region of Alaska and sort of the smell of the tundra in bloom, the way alpine meadows and tundra meadows smell is such a pleasant experience. It's, it's not something you can really recreate. It was in this period that's now become very common in Alaska where the summers are dominated by wildfires. I remember as a pregnant mom, sort of early early in my pregnancy with my second son, the feeling of great relief that we'd had a reprieve from smoky, smoky air and had a chance to actually get outside. And it, I remember just feeling the sense of, of being grateful to have this one one experience and I wanted to commemorate it. Um, one experience to, to, I guess, revisit some of the sensory images of my childhood and to show my older son to kind of instill in him, I guess, through my own cognitions, this, this set of images and smells, experiences, and gratitude for having basically a normal day. Then I also remember visiting Shishmaref uh, in that summer of 2002. Uh, Shishmaref is a small barrier island on the Chukchi Sea, on the Chukchi Sea coast in Alaska, which is really in danger of, of completely disappearing due to climate change. And I remember sitting there with elders and speaking Inupak and eating Nirupiak, um, traditional food. And elders there talking about how there had been a lot of sightings of, of phenomena and things that seemed to indicate a time of great change that was about to, to come upon the Inupar people. We associate Alaska with ice, but it's also covered in fire. Warm weather is arriving sooner and sooner in Alaska. With ice and snow melting earlier in the year, there's more plant matter that dries out and fuels these bigger fires. So as these huge fires increase, so does the frequency of smoky days, which threatens the health of the people who live there. There are fires all over the state. The state was on fire, as many other parts of the country are on fire and the world. We just lived in, in this kind of sepia-toned world. We understand the connection between what happens to the land happens to the people. That's Ine Begay, the executive director of Native Movement, a grassroots social justice organization based in Fairbanks and Anchorage. Centered around an indigenized worldview, they support local projects that create more just and sustainable communities. Well, first I'd say, like, yat e. Um, so I'm, my name is Ine. I'm, uh, that's how I introduce myself traditionally. I'm Navajo and Donna Artham. So those are two Arizona tribes, but I live in Alaska. I live on the lands of the lower Tanana Dene Athabascan peoples, uh, and always give much thanks and gratitude to that historical relationship and current relationship of the peoples here that have caretaken this land since time immemorial. I grew up on the Navajo Reservation to Alaska by way of love. My um, partner is uh, Gwich'in, Alaska Native. That's Alaska Native tribe. And, uh, and we have four children here that are all sorts of Athabascan. So Gwich'in Nation and the Nen Nation, my people, we're all, all part of the Athabascan language family. 
we have stories about each other from from long, long time ago. We, we have stories about this time when when our people come back together again. And you could call them, some people will call it like a prophecy. <laughs> but uh, when I first brought my partner back to my community, my aunties kind of shook me and they said, what are you doing? You're bringing about the end of the world. <laughs> Because our sayings are that when our southern Diné and the northern Diné come back together again, it will be the end of the world. (laughs) But then, Ine's grandfather told her not to listen to them. He said that the story had been mistranslated. Instead, he suggested that it was a sign of the times that may feel like the end of the world, a sign of a time of transition. I think that we're in these times. Last week it was down, it was negative. Today it's like 40 degrees. So we're rapidly warming right now, which means the rivers are rapidly warming, which means there's going to be ice dams, which means villages along these some of these rivers are going to be flooded. And when I say flooded, it's not just like a nice gentle flooding. It's like huge ice chunks taking out community buildings. And so people are preparing now, trying to prepare for the fact that they're going to, what happens to these villages? Do they have to relocate or do they rebuild again? That's what a number of communities throughout Alaska are, are talking about navigating right now, not only on the rivers, but on the coasts of, of Alaska where the, the ocean is changing so rapidly that you've got communities on the coast that are falling into the ocean. It's been years and years of communities trying to figure out how to relocate. There are mountain glaciers and sea glaciers. Alaska has both. As sea glaciers, or ice sheets, spread, they cover everything around them with a thick blanket of ice, including valleys, plains, even entire mountains. Yet in 2019, there was no ice off Alaska's coastline for 150 miles. Nothing. Over the past four decades, The ocean around Alaska has lost so much ice. It would be like if Scotland broke off from the island of Great Britain and just floated away. This dramatic change affects temperatures, food ecosystems, and the people all over the state. Houses are falling off of eroding coastlines. Animals are going hungry because their hunting patterns are disrupted. Entire villages are relocating. Almost 30 years ago, the Yupik people of Newtok voted to relocate their entire village. The permafrost under the village was melting. That's as if the solid ground you're standing on, that the entire community was built on, turned to shifting sand. Rising sea levels were causing the nearby Ninglik River to erode the coasted river line by an average of 70 feet per year. It was more expensive to hold the river back than to relocate everyone 
to a new location across the river. The first phase of this move began two years ago, 25 years after the plan began. Why did it take so long? Well, there's no comprehensive federal plans for aiding communities displaced by climate change. They're on their own. Right now, Native Movement is working with communities facing these same dilemmas. I was privileged to work with some community members. The northwest coast of Alaska, Nome, is on the Bering Sea. I was there in December and there was no ice on the ocean, which is like unheard of. There was just like some slush. And one of the hunters was saying, this is the most dangerous ice because when it freezes, when it does freeze, people will fall in. People are losing their lives. And you need the ice to go hunting. So there was an elder I was talking with. She was telling me about how the marine mammals, the marine animals are in trauma because the seals, they need the ice to have their babies on it. And there's no ice for them to have their babies. And she started to just like cry. And she said, because they're in trauma and there are relatives, we're in trauma. That relationship spiritually, but also the like physical danger that so many people are in with the uncertainty of the land and the water now. One community that we've worked closely with, Nooksuk, that community is surrounded by oil and gas wells already. And because of the flaring of these oil and gas wells, the community, 70% of the community is on medication to breathe. They've got kids with asthma that the doctors are telling them, look, you can't live in this rural part of Alaska where your family has lived for generations and generations because your kids can't breathe there. Sikinik Maupin is an Inupak activist living in Fairbanks, Alaska. Sikinik's people have inhabited the area in and around the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for 12,000 years. She's worked with Native Movement as an organizer and is currently the director of Sovereign Inupak for a Living Arctic, an organization that strengthens Inupak cultural identity and works to loosen the grip of the oil and gas industry on their land. I recently went up north to visit my mom for spring break, and it's about a 12 to 15 hour drive. You get to see what everyone, I think, thinks about when they think about Alaska, just the trees and the scenery and the animals, and it's just really relaxing. Um, But about, you know, 10 to 12 hours in, you hit the oil field, Prudhoe Bay, and it changes drastically. What you're mostly surrounded by are these giant industrial complexes, massive trucks and smoke everywhere. It looks particularly different in the winter when the smoke is coming out because it um, tends to freeze and become a lot more visible, I guess. And so you're driving through that for about three or four hours and you um, have to check in at BP's checkpoint. So for me to visit my mom, I have to have someone escort me for three hours. And so that means someone from the village needs to drive meet me, verify that I'm okay to come in. 
and then I needed to be escorted, which is really hard to do when people have limited gas and time and vehicles. So what I had to do was actually change my residency um, so I could visit my mom so that the oil fields would allow me to drive to my village. Um, the security will pat you down, they'll take apart your car. It's a really kind of invading, I think kind of a humiliating experience. And then you're let in and then you go past man camps, just so much smoke. The place Sikonik is describing is the North Slope. 15 years ago, Prudhoe Bay Oil Field was the largest oil field in North America at over 200,000 acres, or about 160 football fields. Life up there revolves around oil. A few years ago, Sikonik went to Nuxit, a town just west of Prudhoe Bay, to learn how to monitor air quality. In Nuxit, ConocoPhillips owns a significant amount of the oil fields. I read a report and I didn't I didn't know that report would change my life forever. I started to read Toxics and Pollutants and the Implications to Nuxit. And this is information released by ConocoPhillips. They're required to put out the admissions from their operations every three years. I personally think that this is a huge underestimate because, again, they regulate their own pollutants. But even the numbers that they have are extremely shocking. Um, nitrogen oxide, you know, three million pounds in that year alone distributed in the North Slope. And some of the um, direct impacts is lower logical memory, stroke, respiratory illnesses. Rampant wildfires aren't the only thing making it difficult to breathe in Alaska. Many of the toxins from drilling release into the air as superfine particles that attack the lungs. Sikonik says that as a result, 70% of the community is on medication to help them breathe, a fact that made the COVID-19 pandemic all the more dangerous for her community. Yet navigating a path forward is made trickier by the tribe's economic reliance on oil. There isn't necessarily a consensus on how to balance these competing interests. There are people that don't have a choice, spiritually or physically, to leave Nuxet at Murdkakvik, and they don't want to. That's their homes, including my mom who lives up there. And I know every day that they are potentially inhaling extremely toxic pollutants, and it's changed my perspective of my home so much. And it makes me very, very angry when I meet leaders that talk about oil as if it was something given by our sacred creator. And oil isn't evil in itself, but the way that we have extracted and monopolized by making us very, very dependent on oil and having no other perspective purely for the, the greed and the money, it, it does, it makes me really mad to be near people that just don't understand the experiences that I've had. And there are so many in fact, and just indigenous people in general that feel this way. We don't want to be angry at our family, but it's kind of a weird journey to be a community organizer when you're organizing with your own family and, and many times against your own family. Sikonik and Native Movement are working closely with community organizers on the North Slope in opposition to a large project proposed by ConocoPhillips called the Willow Master Project. It was supposed to be one of the biggest proposed projects in an area whose oil production was going through decades of decline, and it would directly disrupt an already endangered migration path for caribou, 
a huge staple of the diet and hunting culture on Alaska's North Slope. Just this August, a federal judge threw out the approval of the ConocoPhillips project because Conoco had failed to fully account for the environmental impact in its proposal. Though this fight is far from over, organizers like Ine remain optimistic. And I often think about something Winona LaDuke told me long ago. When you live in an overconsuming society, it requires constant intervention into other people's territories. We really have to think about where have we been taking from and how do we get more localized? So there's so many layers of injustice still playing out. Our communities are the ones that suffer the health impacts, the um, economic impacts as well, because they're short-lived boom-and-bust economies, and suffer the impacts to food security. The connection to the land is a connection to food, is a connection to culture, is a connection to spirituality. So it, it's deeply woven together, the entire fabric of of being, of being a human being and being in right relationship with the earth. Because we're still th surviving, we're still thriving, we're resilient people after this histories of colonization. It's not about going back to pre-colonial times and living in sod houses or whatnot, but there was an indigenous knowledge and an indigenous science at work in that relationship at that time and we advocate for our not only the community organizing but all of our partners to seek ways to include and to, or to be guided by indigenous knowledge systems i firmly believe that when we're able to bring those partnerships and alliances together we're going to be building solutions globally you know that carry us long term I want to return now to Joan, who we heard from at the top of the show. Joan's journey has taken a different path. She has left Alaska. Her relationship to Alaska has radically changed as a result of climate change. But with that, her sense of hope and her determination to preserve the land and tradition she grew up in is taking a different form. One way that climate change has reshaped my idea of home is that I don't, I don't think of Alaska um, as a place that I, I grew up in. I, I don't know Alaska any longer. I don't know Anchorage. I, I was really in, in a lot of grief, I think, last summer leaving Alaska um, and my sons and I leaving Alaska to relocate to the East Coast. Climate change and the rapidity of it has changed my relationship to my community. I think some things I have to transmit to my sons through language rather than through experience. I think about the work of other indigenous writers and the very basic knowledge that the more languages we speak and have access to, the greater our capacity to survive. So whether that language is through traditional language or through um, more contemporary forms of, of disseminating knowledge, of um, increasing empathy and increasing one sense of, of being connected to, to others, I do have hope. 
Right now, you can support the organizing work Native Movement is doing across the state of Alaska at nativemovement.org. They have opportunities to volunteer, donate, sign petitions, and more. If you want a more targeted approach, Sikkenik's organization, SELA, has similar opportunities to support organizing efforts to protect and preserve Alaska's North Slope. You can find more at S-I-L-A-I-N-U-A-T If you'd like to read more of Joan's poetry, you can find several of her collections on IndieBound.org. Her latest volume of poems, Dark Traffic, further depicts the Arctic, Subarctic, and the Indigenous experience. As we mentioned last week, we're counting down to COP26, which is perhaps the most important climate change meeting in history. Check the show notes for opportunities to urge world leaders to protect our planet and the people on it. As She Rises is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by myself and Liz Smith, with editorial support from Emily Rudder, Ale Tejeda, and Carmen Bocacario. Hey, everyone. You can listen to every episode of As She Rises, including those from the newest season, ad-free with Wondery Plus. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.